take a moment in that prayer and continue praying that to the Lord. Join me. Lord, where else would we go? Where else would we go but your presence among your people? With your word open before us. You have the words of eternal life. You have the eternal truth. You have what our souls, our hungry souls need. You have what our hungry souls lack. So we come to you, Lord. We come to you because you're Lord of all. You exist and you are powerful and you are sovereign over all. And so where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. To help us to feast our souls on your word this morning. To allow your word to be planted deep down in us that it might bear fruit in our lives. Lord, help us to hear your truth. Lord, help us to listen to your voice from your word. And help us to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. Help us to not merely say we believe these things, but that there would be action and obedience and faithfulness in our lives. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gospel that is just as true this Sunday as it was last Sunday. We thank you that Christ was crucified for our sins, that he rose from the dead, powerfully proving everything he said was true and just. Lord, help us to believe that the risen Christ is with us and here among us and speaking to us. So, Lord, help us to submit. Teach us to number our days. Teach us to live in light of the end. Teach us to trust you in the here and now. We open your word with that anticipation. We pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' great name. Amen. Amen. So good to see you this morning. So good to be here with you. We took a short break from our study of the book of James uh, for the last couple weeks to focus intentionally on the death and the resurrection of Jesus, but it's time to jump back in uh, to our study of the book of James. We need to allow James to smack us around for a few more weeks. James is extremely hard-hitting and convicting. I, I recently heard someone express thankfulness for the book of James, and they said they're thankful that the book of James is only five chapters long because we couldn't take any more than that. We'll be in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17 this morning. James 4. 13 through 17. Now, if you remember, James started chapter 4 by declaring that we are at enmity with God when we are friends with the world. But God gives more grace. In fact, God opposes the proud, but James says he gives grace to the humble. And it is that humility that James will continue to encourage us toward in this last passage of chapter 4. James 4, verses 13 through 17. And what a privilege. What a privilege to open God's Word, to read it in our own language, 
to study it together. What a privilege it is for me to read God's Word to us this morning. James says, come now. You who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. This is the authoritative Word of God. May God write its truth on our hearts. The main point of this passage is that life is extremely fragile and uncertain and God is in control. Therefore, because that's true, because we're fragile, because life is uncertain, and because God is in control, therefore pride and self-sufficiency are extremely evil. Because life is so fragile and uncertain, and because God is in control, it is extremely evil to live with pride and self-sufficiency. James says in verse 14, that our lives are merely a mist that appears for a short time and then vanishes. Your life, my life, is is like a mist that disappears just as quickly as it appears. Just as a shift in the wind blows away the smoke, so our lives are here one minute and they are gone the next. And so James calls us to consider and to embrace this core truth about our everyday lives. God is in control. We are not. Nothing happens outside of God's sovereignty in any of our lives. He is sovereign. And we are a mist. Now, all of us live in these realities all the time. Even when we don't even realize it, these things are true about us. But I feel like God in some particular way is teaching me these truths right now. Like I've preached this passage before, and I've actually considered this passage to be one of my favorite passages in the Bible for a long time. I've learned so much from this passage that applies to my life. But what I'm learning over these past couple months as I've anticipated preaching this passage is that when everything is going well, when all of your plans are going according to plan, it's hard to understand what this passage is teaching. When everything is going well, it's hard to grasp and understand just how fragile life is. I don't normally talk about myself, and I do that intentionally, but I feel like if in some way my life and the illustration of my life could help you understand this passage, 
I would be thankful to God. And so, on December 8th, just a few months ago, for me, it was a normal Wednesday morning. I ate some Cheerios, I took my kids to school, and I started working on a Christmas message that I was going to preach that Sunday. My stomach started hurting. It was no big deal. It would go away like it had before. I thought to myself, just a few hours after that, I was balled up on my bathroom floor, screaming, crying, still assuming it would just go away. Just a few hours after that, I was in an ambulance for the first time in my life. As you know, as many of you know, gallstone pancreatitis put me in the hospital for 16 days. I thought I was going to die. One specific night, I knew it was the end. I was sure that was it. But I was at peace. I knew and rested in God's sovereignty. I feel like I had prepared for a long time to face death, and I was ready for it. But as you know, I've gotten better over the past few months. God has been kind. He has been good. But I learned just last week that everything is still not right with my pancreas. It's diminished. Doctor says it's weak. Doctor says there's a portion of it that's dead. And not only that, but there's a large mass of fluid attached to my pancreas. These findings are still uncertain. We still don't know exactly what they mean, but at the very least, we know that this means I'm going to have to face further procedures, scans, possibilities, and uncertainties. And really just to state the reality as bluntly as I know how to state it, if this fluid sac burst or gets somehow infected, I would be in great pain and would most likely die. And this could happen at any moment without warning. These new findings have sort of left me feeling out of balance. The ground feels a little more shaky. My hopes and dreams a little more dim. I guess despair is sort of the best way to describe what I have been battling these past few weeks. The ongoing uncertainty and fragility of my life and my health have made me, I've made it feel impossible to face. See, I was ready to face death, not scared at all to die. But I've found that I am scared of uncertainty. I am scared of weakness. I am scared of life with the possibility of pain and suffering. The idols in my heart of self-sufficiency and desire to control my life are being exposed in my heart every single day. Which is why if ever I needed to hear and embrace the truth of this passage, it is now. Which is why I feel like the reason we are right here in James right now is for my own heart. And if the circumstances of my life, if the uncertainty that I'm facing right now will help you hear this passage in some way, I will be grateful to God 
that you would sense the, the fragility and uncertainty of your own life. Even if all is going well, even if all your plans are going according to plan, I pray that you would somehow feel the weight of what James is teaching us in this passage. Because one of the lessons that we all need to learn as soon as possible is, is that our stubborn self-sufficiency is offensive to the Lord. Our stubborn self-sufficiency is offensive to God. For far too long, we've lived as if we are in control of our lives. We've made plans. We've developed goals. We've pursued dreams apart from dependence upon the Lord. We've depended far too often on ourselves and far too little on the Lord. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge Him. That's what this passage in James 4 is teaching us. Through this passage, God is teaching us that we are more proud and we are more weak than we realize. And we need the Lord God more than we realize. In other words, our sinful self-sufficiency is stupid in a world where God is in control of everything. Our sinful self-sufficiency is stupid in light of the fact that our life is a mist that appears today and is gone tomorrow. As James says in chapter 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God opposes the self-sufficient, but He gives grace to those who depend upon him. And so let's study this passage in hopes that God will reveal the pride in our hearts and drench us with humility. I want to anchor our thoughts on three truths in this passage. Three truths. Number one, we are more proudly self-sufficient than we realize. You and I are more proudly self-sufficient than we realize in this moment. Notice that James begins verse 13 by demanding our attention. Come now, you who say. This is James's way of sort of grabbing us by the shoulders and looking into our eyes. And he says, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, here's the question I have about verse 13. What exactly is wrong with what these people are saying? Like, why is James so upset over what they are saying? This seems to be normal, everyday activity. The kind of activity that I was doing on the morning of December 8th. I mean, here are a few businessmen. They're just planning how to make a living over the next year. And this actually, if you look at it, is a pretty well thought through plan. I mean, I think these guys could write a business bestseller and help a lot of people who who are not so good at making a plan. Notice what they planned out. They've planned their time of departure. Today or tomorrow. They've planned their destination. We will go to such and such a town. They planned how long they were going to stay there. We'll spend a year there. They planned their itinerary for the trip. They're going to engage in trade. And they've even thought about the goal of their trip. They're going to trade and make a profit. 
So here we have a few businessmen who see an opportunity to make a living over the next year in a particular city. Just looking at verse 13, it seems like this is a great plan. But look at James's assessment of this plan in verse 16. Here's the divine interpretation of verse 13. Verse 16. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. James says that the plan in verse 13 is filled with arrogance and therefore it is evil. Really? When you read verse 13, do you get the sense that what is going on is evil? What's wrong with what these businessmen have planned? This sounds very similar to what you and I do on a daily basis. I mean, some of us, we we run errands and we go to the grocery store and we think about these exact same things, right? You think about when you're going to go so as to avoid the crowds or after the kids have gotten up from a nap. You plan which stores you're going to go to. You make a list to remind yourself of what you need to get while you're there. Or think about the last time you planned a trip. You planned just like these guys did in verse 13, didn't you? You have to determine where you're going. You have to determine when you're going. You have to determine how long you're going to stay there. You have to determine what you're going to do when you get there. And if you're smart, you determine what your goal is, what you hope to accomplish on that trip. Verse 13 sounds innocent in and of itself. And so what's so evil about the plans quoted in verse 13? Well, don't get this wrong. There's nothing unethical or immoral about the plan that they're making. I know of no passages of Scripture that condemn the practice of planning itself. It's not the planning that is evil. Also, I know of no passages of Scripture that condemn the making of an honest prophet. And so what is, what is evil about it? What's wrong with this plan? Well, we learn from verses 14 and 15 that the arrogance is not in what they plan to do. The pride and evil is in the attitude and underlying belief with which they made the plans. Attitude, motives, matter to God. They made these plans as if they were self-sufficient. They made these plans as if they were in control of all the factors involved. They assumed that they were the captain of their own ship. You see, they've thought of everything. They've crossed all their T's. They've dotted all their I's. They've considered all the various variables, but they forgot the most important reality in the universe. They forgot God. They completely left God out of their plans. And James says, that's evil. To live as if you are self-sufficient, to live as if you don't need God, and not acknowledging Him and His grace and His goodness is evil. The ultimate expression of pride is to live as if you don't need God. And pride manifests itself. Pride in our lives shows up in the delusion of self sufficiency proud people live as if they are in control which is why pride is such a serious sin in God's eyes pride is offensive to God because it ignores forgets and belittles him and so the Bible says God hates the proud God condemns the proud and God will punish pride 
If we believe what James says in chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud, then we would understand that at every stage of our life, pride is our greatest enemy because God opposes the proud. I don't know about you, but I don't want the holy God of the universe as my enemy opposing me. That's not the side of the line of scrimmage that I want to be on. Thomas Watson once wrote, the proud man is the mark which God shoots at and he never misses the mark. The reality is all of us were born with proud hearts and putting pride to death in our life is a lifelong pursuit. We never arrive at this which is why we need the Savior just as much today as we ever have. Jesus, our Savior, bore the Father's hatred of pride and self-sufficiency, and He bore it in His own body. He was opposed by His own Father because of our pride. God opposes the proud, and as Jesus died on that cross, He took our pride and our self-sufficiency and was opposed by His own Father. I love the song we sing, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to His blood. And so James is confronting the subtle sin of self-sufficiency in our hearts. The subtle sin of self-sufficiency in your heart, in my heart. We are more proudly self-sufficient than we realize. In our day-to-day activities, in our day-to-day plans, in our day-to-day comings and goings, we forget God. We act as if we can do it on our own. We act as if we are in control of our lives. That's the first truth in the text. The second truth I want you to notice in this text is this. We are weaker than we realize. We are weaker than we realize. You and I are weaker than we realize. In verse 14, James tells us what was lacking in the plans of verse 13. James reminds us of one of the most important truths in all the universe that we tend to forget as humans, and that is, we are weak. In fact, James is not vague about our weakness at all. You see, I say, I'm saying we are weaker than we realize, and that's super vague. Like, okay, but James isn't vague. He reminds us of two very specific weaknesses that we have. Notice first, James reminds us of our own ignorance. How are we weak? We're weak in our ignorance. Notice what he says in verse 14. He says, yet, yet, come now, you say, today and tomorrow we'll go to such and such a place. We'll make a living there. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. See, these guys are planning out the profit they hope to bring a year from now. And James says, you're completely ignorant of the future. You don't even know what's going to happen in the next moment, much less in the next year. You're totally ignorant of the future. None of us is omniscient. There is only one being in the universe who knows it all, and we are not him. 
we act as if we know how our lives will play out over the next few years or even few days. But the truth is, we are ignorant. That's the truth. I've been reminded of my own ignorance every day as I feel the various movements and noises coming from my digestive system. Like, I have no idea what is even going on in my own body, much less what the future holds for it. What I do know is minuscule compared to what I don't know. What I do know is like a drop of water in the ocean compared to what I don't know. When's the last time you just acknowledged that? When's the last time you just acknowledged how deeply ignorant you are? You don't even know what the next minute will bring. When's the last time you made plans with your own ignorance at the forefront of your mind? It's the last time you plan to do something tomorrow or 10 years from now that you just acknowledged, I'm making this plan, but I'm completely ignorant of what the circumstances will be. The second truth about our weakness that James mentions in verse 14 is our frailty. Our frailty. We're weak in this sense. We're ignorant and we are frail. We are both ignorant and frail. Notice the question at the middle of verse 14. And just again, look down at your Bible because I want you to see this question. Middle of verse 14. What is your life? What is your life? That is a penetrating question that we need to ask ourselves. What is your life? And then James answers the question in the second half of verse 14. He says, this is what your life is. You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. This is what human life is like. Human life is like a mist. It's here one moment and it's gone the next. Think about talking outside with someone on a cold day. You can see your breath. You can see the other person's breath for a split second and then it vanishes. Or think about the steam rising from a cup of hot coffee. The steam vanishes just as quickly as it appears. And James says human life is like that. Human life is like a vapor, a mist that disappears just as quickly as it arrives. Our lives on earth are as fragile and temporary as a mist. Now, This way of thinking about ourselves and our lives is diametrically opposed to everything we hear every day from our culture. Our culture is fascinated with encouraging our self-esteem. Our culture preaches to us about our own value day in and day out. Believe in yourself. You are beautiful just the way you are. You just be you. James is counseling us to see ourselves as we truly are. We are ignorant and we are frail. We are ignorant and we are frail. And someone could object here and say, okay, okay, we all know that life in this world is uncertain. Our lives are temporary, yes, but we still have to plan for the future, right? I mean, if we don't plan for the future, we'll be unprepared when we get there. And so how does our ignorance and our frailty impact the way that we plan for tomorrow? And the answer is yes, let's plan. 
planning is a biblical category. However, what James is teaching us is that we have to plan with the proper attitude. We have to plan with the proper beliefs. We have to plan with the, with the attitude of humility. We have to relate to our plans, realizing just how ignorant and frail we really are. Plans do not, that do not reflect that, that do not reflect the knowledge of our ignorance and frailty, James says, are evil plans. And so may God drench us with massive humility as we believe this about ourselves. We are weaker than we realize. We are more ignorant than we know. We are more frail than we're willing to admit. Well, the third truth from this text that I want you to notice is this. Number three, we need the Lord more than we realize. We're more proudly self-sufficient than we realize. We're weaker than we realize. And we need the Lord more than we realize. So verse 15 contains the main truth forgotten in the plans of verse 13. What was forgotten in these business people's plans? The main reason the plans of verse 13 are arrogant and evil is because they did not include God. So James says, verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says, instead of pridefully assuming that we are self-sufficient, we should depend upon the sovereign God of the universe. Notice what James is calling us to believe and say. James is calling us to believe something and to say that something. He is proclaiming the comprehensive sovereignty of God over all of life. Verse 15 declares two truths about God's control of our lives. God determines the duration of our lives. And God determines the activities of our lives. Notice those two things. James says, the duration of our lives is in the hands of God. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord doesn't will, we will not live. God not only knows, but God controls the length of our earthly lives. Psalm 139, verse 16 says, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. All the days ordained for me were written before one of them happened. God has determined the number of our days, friends, which means we are immortal until our allotted days run out. No one and no thing can thwart God's plan for our scheduled time on this earth. And friends, there is massive encouragement in this truth. Believing and saying this, there is tremendous encouragement. I am so glad that I'm not in control of the duration of my life. I'm so glad that it's not up to me to determine the number of my days. Satan does not control the number of your days. Friends, a virus or a disease or a gallstone does not control the number of your days. God and God alone is in control of the duration of our lives. James says, if the Lord wills, you will live. Believe this and say this. Believe it that God is in control of the number of your days and say it. If the Lord wills, I will live. 
But secondly, James says, the activities of our lives are in God's hands. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And if the Lord doesn't will, we will not do this or that. If the Lord does not will, we will not make it to such and such a city. If the Lord does not will, we will not engage in trade and we will not make a profit. Friends, both the number of our days and the activities that fill those days are controlled by the sovereign and loving God of creation. He has comprehensive sovereignty. And this attitude should pervade all of our planning. God is in complete control of my life and He is far more capable of running it than I am. James says we should believe this about God and we should believe it so much that we say it. We should believe it so much that we declare it. Listen, friends, if the Lord wills, you will go to college. If the Lord wills, you will get married and have a family. If the Lord wills, you will have a job. If the Lord wills, you will buy a house. If the Lord wills, inflation will slow. If the Lord wills, your business will be profitable. If the Lord wills, you will remain healthy. If the Lord wills, you will retire. And if the Lord doesn't will, none of these things will happen and it will be Okay. Verses 14 and 15, James is giving us a framework for pervasive humility in our lives. Pervasive humility is the response to these truths. These two truths should inform our attitude about everything in life. We are weak and God is strong. We are frail and God is faithful. We are ignorant and God is omniscient. We are dependent, and God alone is self-sufficient. Knowing and believing these things should free us to live radically obedient and humble lives. These truths should enlarge our capacity to depend upon God with greater fervency. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, how practical are these truths in a life of uncertainty and fragility? I love the story of a missionary named John G. Patton. I've shared his story in many illustrations, but he spent his life preaching the gospel on some islands in the South Seas, just off the coast of Australia. His autobiography is actually one of the most engaging books that I've ever read. I highly recommend it. And his life shows just how practical these truths of our weakness and God's sovereignty should make us radically obedient, should make a difference in how we live our lives. I'll share with you just one story from Patton's autobiography. He's, he's in the South Seas and he's ministering among cannibals. And these cannibals don't like him. And in this particular example, he's being encircled by them and they want to kill him. And he's with one of his converts who he's called Abraham, and he says this, The savages began urging one another to kill us, but I look round them as calmly as possible saying, My Jehovah God will punish you here and hereafter if you kill me or any of His servants. A killing stone thrown by one of the savages grazed poor old Abraham's cheek, and the dear soul gave such a look at me and then upward as if to say, Missy, I was nearly carried away to Jesus. A club was also raised to follow the blow of the killing stone, 
but God baffled the aim. They encircled us in a deadly ring and one kept urging another to strike the first blow or to fire the first shot. He says, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw Him watching over all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. And then He said this. He said, I realized that I was immortal till my Master's work with me was done. The assurance came to me as if a voice from heaven had spoken that not a musket would be fired to wound us. Not a club prevailed to strike us. Not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown without the permission of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. See, it was Patton's strong dependence on the complete sovereignty of God that gave him confidence to press on and keep trusting and keep being obedient. The reality that we are weak, verse 14, and God is sovereign, verse 15, should free us from our sinful self-sufficiency. It is evil to live and plan as if you are self-determining. And so friends, battle your tendency toward this pride, toward the pride of self-sufficiency by knowing that life is a vapor and God is in complete control of your life. And so one of the most practical responses to these truths comes in verse 15. What does James want us to do? Well, in response to what we believe to be true about ourselves and about God, James teaches us, again, to say something. James says we should say something. We should say, if the Lord wills. If the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will do this and that. Now, now listen. I am not encouraging you to be obnoxious with this. Don't be obnoxious with this. I don't think we need to correct others who share their plans without saying, if the Lord wills, on the end of it. And I'm not encouraging you to just to make this a meaningless formula that we add to the end of sentences that absolutely means nothing. But when appropriate, and with a humble heart that is dependent on God, sometimes we should say out loud, if the Lord wills. If for no other reason, we should say this out loud, if for no other reason than to remind ourselves of how weak we are and how sovereign God is. Just to remind ourselves that these truths are truths we believe. And we live in the midst of this uncertainty. Life is a vapor, but God is sovereign. You see, humble people believe and declare that they are completely dependent upon God. God loves to pour out His grace on those who humbly depend upon Him. Desperate people receive grace from God. God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And so James teaches us that we are more proudly self-sufficient than we realize. We are weaker than we realize in our ignorance and in our frailty. And we need the Lord more than we realize. And then James states this powerful conclusion in verse 17. Have you ever seen this verse in verse 17? James says, so, so, here's the conclusion. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. 
Now, I think this applies to all of life. This is talking about the sin of omission, not doing things that the Lord calls us to do, which we don't often think of sin in those categories. And that's very challenging to think about all of life and all that God has called us to do and how we disobey Him and not doing what He has called us to do. James says it's sin. But in this context, James is saying specifically that if we fail to acknowledge our own weakness and if we fail to depend upon God for everything, we are in sin. See, we often treat sin as if it were just sort of an occasional lack of judgment on our part. But this passage reminds us that sin is much more pervasive in our hearts than we realize. We are arrogant and we are self-sufficient people the lack of humility in our lives should cause us to weep before our God. And this passage should drive us to the foot of the cross again and again where the, the sin in our hearts, the self-sufficiency that we have was laid on the shoulders of the perfect Lamb of God. Friends, Jesus didn't die for our occasional lack of judgment. He didn't die because we just need a little bit of help. He died for our pride he died for our lack of humility. He was crushed for our sinful self-sufficiency. And listen, if you trust in Jesus alone, all your sins are washed away by His blood and by His perfection. And not only is your, your sins wiped away by His blood, but He transfers all of His perfection to your account. Because of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, God would treat us as if we have obeyed Him perfectly as if we'd always acknowledged our weakness and always depended upon His sovereignty. Because of the Savior's substitution in our place, we get all of God's grace as if we have lived in complete dependence upon Him. So friends, let's trust in Jesus today. Let's pour contempt on all our pride by acknowledging how ignorant and frail we really are. And let's celebrate the supremacy of Jesus over all things, by completely depending upon Him for our life and for the activities of our lives. Let's pray. Lord, You know the number of our days. You know the number of our hours. You know the number of our minutes. Forgive us for sinfully assuming we are in control of our lives for sinfully planning as if it all depends upon us. Oh God, I pray that the attitude that would pervade our minds and hearts as Your people is the attitude of our weakness and of Your strength, of our ignorance and of Your knowledge. Oh God, help us to believe these things and to say these things for Your glory, for Your praise, and for Your honor. We trust You, Lord. No matter what comes our way, we trust You. Help us to trust You. Forgive us when we don't depend upon You. And Lord, I pray that You would fill this room of people with Your presence, with Your power, with Your grace in such a way that we would live pleasing and honoring and glorifying to You, the One who is in control of all things. We submit ourselves to You. We trust you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Let's stand.